Hi, I'm Ronnie Michael, Global Head of Innovation for KPMG International, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Back From 2040 podcast, where I ask business leaders, innovators, academics, and forward thinkers to travel to 2040, tell us what the world looks like, and explore how we got there. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Alexander Klimberg, head of the Center for Cybersecurity at the World Economic Forum. He's a leading cyber policy researcher, free internet advocate, and norm entrepreneur, as well as the author of the critically acclaimed book, The Darkening Web. Welcome, Alex. Hi, it's great to be here. So I'm very curious to hear about your time in 2040. And of course, before we dive in, I'll just say this is your 2040, the 2040 that you believe we can get to. So, you know, to get us started, it would be great for you to set up the scene for us. Can you tell us what the internet looks like in 2040 and how it's different from today in 2022? Well, thanks for asking, because it's a, it's a great place to be here in 2040. So here, cyberspace is a versatile, diverse domain. So just like all the other domains, airspace, land, we don't have just one thing. We don't have just one internet or one mountain. We have a number of different things, and they all kind of coexist providing diversity depending on the needs, like different geography. So like in transport, you know, we have the roads, we have the rails, and we have the bike paths. So we still have ye old internet, the basic road, whose combination of like centralization and decentralization has been pretty useful for a lot of things, and that's still there. And now we also have the fancy bullet train, the metaverse that runs on its own tracks, but we also have the freewheeling bike lanes of what used to be called Web 3.0. So we have something for everyone, for every need, and instead of just one thing, and that's why this space is a great place to be in. That's amazing. That is really setting the scene. Tell me a little bit about this area that you've dived into, obviously, a lot, which is cybercrime and crime also more generally. What does that look in 2040? Who are the criminals now? Do they have a name and face? And, and how is this different than the criminals and cyber criminals that we know today? Well, here in 2040, we have largely cracked the whole cybersecurity problem. And we cracked it by figuring out that we didn't actually have a technology problem. We had a political problem, a governance problem the entire time. So decades long, we were developing new technical fixes. We were developing our zero trust frameworks and a security by design. But it turned out that no matter how secure you thought your system was, somebody was always going to get in. And that effectively, the solution to all of this was not to concentrate only on the technology aspects, but also on the governance aspects. So the turning point was partially in 2025, and we can get there in a moment. But back then, in 2025, the challenge was really how did we deal with these security issues? Because that was the biggest issue back then. And these security issues were actually mostly coming from actions of states. It turned out they hid behind cyber criminals a lot, but states were really a driving actor in making this domain more insecure. And this suited not only some state actors who wanted to have a different type of internet, but also actually some private actors who wanted to have their own solution. It turned out that the solution really was balancing out these different interests. And when we managed to do that, basically aligning our, our law enforcement procedures, having better clarity on how to do cooperation in cyberspace properly. And as it turned out, the magic sauce, which turned out to be multi-stakeholderism, we were able to balance out these security issues and limit the state's interest in conducting these types of attacks and facilitating cybercrime. Because in 2024, 25, cybercrime was hardly ever prosecuted. It was too easy to do. And it was basically something that had a conviction rate of in the single percentiles. And it was 
hard not to do cybercrime. So now we've changed that paradigm. And by doing that, we limit cyber attacks to really the most proficient actors. So war and state conflict is still there, obviously, but it's now constrained. Just like effectively, we are now in a world of of actual cyber armies and not cyber mercenaries. So it's a bit like going from the pirates of the Caribbean to a bit more stable state-to-state -state situation, which is easier to manage. So we still have cyber crime, although it's pretty advanced and concentrating on different aspects related to problems that we've always seen, child sexual abuse material, issues of identity theft and similar. But we have a bit more of a handle on how cybercrime is carried out because the underlier, namely state's interest in attacking through cyberspace, has been better addressed. That's amazing. I have a few follow-up questions, but maybe first, can you expand a little bit about these multiple stakeholders, um, who they are and how they came together? Well, so in 2025, we had a big meeting called the World Summit of Information Society. And that was actually the third meeting it was WSIS plus 20, as it was called, because the original meeting in 2005 was when the basic magic formula for running the internet was agreed. And that magic formula was called multi-stakeholderism or the multi-stakeholder model. And that was because the internet from its start was always run by the government, the private sector, and the civil society, all in their respective areas. Now, it turned out that the power distribution was really the other way around. Civil society wrote all the code and ran most of the critical infrastructure of the internet. Private sector owned all of the internet, and government really could just blow things up and spy on things, but didn't really build very much in cyberspace. So it was a kind of a magic formula that was agreed upon way back in 2005 that the internet was a non-state-led domain. States would not like on the high seas or even the information domain overall be the final word on this issue. The problem was that this did not work for some states who were always very concerned about their own exposure and their own control of information in their governments. And also it didn't work for some corporations. It didn't work for all actors. So we needed to find a way to balance this all out. And in 2025, we had the big meeting in the UN that was planned many years in advance by with over 120 heads of government attending, but also for the first time, the CEOs of the major corporations and some of these corporations are actually quite small, but still extremely important for the internet, as well as the civil society actors, researchers, and others that actually run the internet. So under the UN, for the first time, all of these actors came together in a principle that effectively everything that wasn't expressly forbidden was allowed, which is a principle of freedom. So therefore, it wasn't a question of who gave them the right to be there. Well, we were building the internet. We geeks were always creating it on our own violation. Nobody allowed us to do it. We just did it. And based on that same principle, this was reinforced and secured. That's great. That sounds amazing. And and I love the fact that, uh, you know, organizations were involved, but also civil society. And it sounds like societal changes in society in, in general had a lot to do here, even maybe more than technology or regulation. Is that the way that things evolved? I think that's probably the best way to put it. So a lot of different things changed both back in 2025 and also as a result of change now. And again, it was the interplay of technology and society that made the difference. So Back then, in 2025, one of the big changes that needed to occur was that the civil society organizations or the nonprofits 
and which are basically very often engineers who work in large companies who volunteered their time to help build the internet, but also such organizations like ICAM, the Internet Corporation of Assigned Names and Numbers that runs the domain name system, the telephone book of the internet, that those organizations tended to hide from the public gaze of government. They only had bad experience from government. Government was the people who came and tried to regulate what they didn't understand. So they just basically kept on doing their thing and thought they could do that on their own. They would be left alone. But of course, they weren't going to be left alone. The internet was too important. So there was a sea change in the technical community about hiding away from the public view from security by obscurity, as it goes, and engaging in the UN system where they were actually always invited by many of the liberal democracies who really wanted to hear their views. And by doing that, they helped make the point that the multi-stakeholder model, this notion that those who build and run and operate should have a say, became more prevalent also in other parts of the UN. So the big breakthrough was to have the technical community proactively engaging and helping to create the laws and regulations at the international scale that also also transmitted down to the national scale, but also helping set this principle. And this principle was really about being as inclusive and wide as possible and never made for quick decision making. But that's how the internet has been built for over 25 years now, back in 2025, and it's a stable model. It basically means that we have rough consensus. We don't have 51%, 52% agreement on something. We have rough consensus. People really are on board. And that means you're likely to get further, even if it doesn't go as quickly. That's why in 2040, the internet that we have now is not too dissimilar to the internet that we had back then, because the rate of change did slow down. The second big change that we did see though society-wise is that we are now adapting more to the internet a little bit rather than trying to force the internet to adapt to us and cyberspace mm -hmm. overall. And one example for that is Web3, which back in the day was slightly controversial because it was always connected to Bitcoin currencies and similar, but actually it turned out that its biggest breakthrough application was an application of the so-called open ledger technology, the blockchain, to societies and organizations. So you were able to join something called like a distributed organization or distributed autonomous organization that basically set its own rules, its own laws. And by using this technology, you were able to be constantly supervised in how you're adhering to certain behaviors, engaging in certain purchases, et cetera, and were therefore part virtually of an independent legal system that was constantly managing you. So it's basically become an opt-in type of statehood, which in 2040 very often is determined by healthcare concerns. So you are able to engage in a whole different style of living if, for instance, you subscribe to certain programs that monitor your every existence. So you effectively get benefits for being completely supervised. Not That's not for everyone, and therefore it's good that this is an opt-in technology rather than mandatory for everyone. But that's just one example of where societal forms have been developed off the back of this technology rather than trying to force the technology to change. And, and it sounds pretty incredible. I'm just wondering what is the role of regulation and governments in this new order, so to speak? And is this now a distributed regulation system or do regulators and countries have an actual effect on life in countries and governments? Now, that's a great question. Back around the same time, in the early 2020s, the principle of co-regulation developed primarily in the European Union, who saw themselves as being a regulation powerhouse. 
since they couldn't export much technology or large businesses to the internet, they started exporting regulation, and their regulation turned out to be fairly dominant worldwide, but also, more importantly, the way they did it. So a lot of the major laws that came out in the beginning of 2020 in the European Union tended to be revised at a fairly rapid clip. The very contentious GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, that was the first such regulation ever to come out worldwide, was constantly revised. And it was done so on the basis of a feedback loop that most other legislators did not yet conceive as possible outside of the European Union, which basically allowed for updating principles and laws on a much more rapid basis than was previously there. And in co-regulation, what we also saw was that the political sphere would effectively voice interests that needed they would say certain things needed to be taken care of and then would allow the actors concerned, most often the private sector, to formulate responses to it. And then they would judge if that response was sufficient enough for their needs or if they had to step in with a stronger regulative element. We saw this, for instance, in social media, where in the European Union, again, a couple of suggestions were put forward that basically played a great role in helping deal with extremist content online. There was something called GIF-CT that the large providers used, or the Global Internet Forum on Counterterrorism, which the global internet providers used to exchange information on, for instance, terrorist content. And this came out of a back and forth between European government actors and private sector that effectively amounted to light-touch regulation, but one where stronger regulative elements were always ready, and there was a wider framework and agreement that just because a bill has been passed and is done, that's not the end of it. And you have to revise these things. In this case, every two to five years. And that's where we are today, constantly revising the regulations that are out there, but first trying to work with industry practices and community practices and only slowly building out where it was clear that those practices weren't sufficient themselves. That's great. And that's such a shift in the way that reality eventually materialized. Everyone coming together, the UN, corporates and society I'm just thinking about the alternative reality that could have materialized. And it sounds like we really, 2025 was such a pivotal moment. We kind of skipped an alternative reality. Can you tell us about what could have happened and what prevented us from getting there? Yeah, 2025 probably was a historical cusp. Previous to that, we seem to be on the road to cyber ruin. There was escalating cyber attacks, largely again, by states, although very often they hid behind cyber criminals and therefore effectively pushed a lot of the cyber criminal behavior we saw today. And ransomware became interchangeable. So ransomware was, of course, what we thought we were dealing with back then when criminals encrypted our data and demanded money. But it turned out that very often they weren't interested in the money and you couldn't even pay to get your data back. It was simply political activity, usually in the behalf of states. And since the political situation was heating up so strongly in 2025, there was a strong chance that the internet would fragment. And the fragmentation was along the lines that some of the governments were insistent the multi-stakeholder model did not give them sufficient ability to control, quote unquote, their cyberspace. And their cyberspace was their information domain, was the area where their population effectively also would create their political opinions, some of it maybe against their authority. So therefore, they were much more concerned about it than most liberal democracies were and made a big deal about having much more stronger government authority over parts of the internet. So in this alternative 2025, these states threatened to basically break the global internet as we know it. And that happens. The internet breaks apart. We have different routes. We have two and then three 
and then four different internets that are created. Between those internets, the difficulty of actually transmitting data becomes increasingly acute because we're actually talking about effectively digital iron curtains or areas where your data packet basically had to go through a type of customs every single time it entered a new internet. So global commerce was severely hampered, especially since global commerce was increasingly relying on machine-to-machine data exchange, which is exactly what the ye old internet 2.0 excelled at doing. So that was becoming increasingly difficult. And between these different internets, we also had controlled information spheres that sprung up. So you would have some populations that effectively were being highly indoctrinated and therefore were not really in a position to associate themselves with anything outside of their own particular culture, meaning that we were in a consistent political turmoil zone, way in excess of anything the Cold War had to offer. And the turmoil that we're talking about was actually existential because the worst thing that can happen in full-out cyber war is not simply that the lights go out, is that the lights never come back on again, that the critical infrastructure gets burned out and cannot be easily replaced, and we effectively lose not only all of our data, all our electricity transmission capabilities, but a lot of our data. And if that happens, it's a, akin to a limited nuclear strike, or actually even worse than a limited nuclear strike. And those risks rise exponentially with the rise in political tensions in cyberspace. So in 2025, we not only avoided situation where we had a fragmentation of the internet into effectively warring internets, and with the threat of actual apocalyptic devastation being very similar to the Damocles sword of nuclear devastation back in the 60s and 70s of the previous century, but also a situation where individual corporate interests were able to establish not only walled gardens, but effectively a little bit like walled prisons, where they effectively controlled the data of their users so completely that you basically became, in the best case, a citizen, if it was in a system that was run by rule of law, and in the worst case, a serf to those interests. So it was a very much a world based off the writings of science fiction author William Gibson, who first coined the term cyberspace and who painted a very bleak image of what that future could look like. And luckily, that didn't happen. And usually we end this podcast by asking, you know, what would you take away from 2040? Well, the realization that Governance matters more than technology is becoming increasingly acute. And within governance, certain words matter a lot. And the term multi-stakeholder has gone up in UN system-related language fourfold in between 2018 and 2022 alone. It's being developed as we speak. And that means that this reality will be defined eventually through what we are doing now. So what does multi-stakeholderism really mean? Does it mean what, for instance, some governments think it means, which is the government may be advised if it so wishes by the civil society and private sector, or does it mean what other governments wish, which is it's the government, the civil society, the private sector, all equally engaged, or is there a combination of these two views where there's different forms of multi-stakeholders depending on the domain? What we need to be aware of is that being quiet at this stage, not being involved in sharing your views and what you want to have happen is likely like not casting a vote in an election. This will be defined one way or the other. And in a couple of years, the internet will be decided on one way or the other. It will either continue as is, maybe with basic tweaks to its governance, or it will fragment. And if it fragments, 
which will likely happen if we lose control over what the multi-stakeholder definition means from the point of view of those living in liberal democracies or who believe in public-private cooperation overall. If we lose control of that, then we're likely going to enter this negative spiral that might have happened back in 2025 with different internets, different ecosystems, all in conflict with each other. If we get our handle on it, on the other hand, then we're likely to be able to find not only medium ground between various interests, but we'll also be able to expand our notions of democracy and governance at the same time. So it's a very exciting period to, to work on, and I would urge everyone to speak up because not speaking up is the same as being silent. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'm really optimistic about the reality that you painted for us for 2040. I'm slightly dreading an alternate reality, so I echo your final words as well. Definitely agree about speaking up. And again, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Back From 2040, the KPMG podcast where our guests travel to 2040 and back and tell us all about it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast channel. And if you have any feedback, you can email us on innovation.team at kpmg.com.